This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the BBC News Quiz, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, The David Pakman Show, Comedian Lee Camp, Slate Magazine, The Progressive, The Rachel Maddow Show, and Jim Hightower with a bonus video clip for Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. Hugo, who has proposed major surgery for the health service? Uh, this would be uh, Andrew Lansley, the health secretary, and his friend David Cameron. Are there the Tories' NHS proposals, massive reforms to the NHS? They've decided that GPs are brilliant, which is true, but they've decided the problem with the NHS is all the administrators. So what they're going to do is get rid of all the administrators, destroy primary care trusts, and give all their responsibilities to GPs. But then the GPs are going to think, hold on, I'm a GP. I don't know how to administrate. So they're going to have to re-employ all the administrators, which means all the same people are going to get re-employed in a different way. They've basically created proposals whereby they're going to spend millions of pounds and endure ten years of chaos to end up almost exactly back where they started. It's brilliant. <laughs> so in theory, though, any company could decide to move into healthcare. Well, there's also the, um, the, the competition aspect. Like an egg and spoon race? Pretty much. Well, <laughs> ish. Only if you're very unlucky. Because at the moment, you need your appendix out and your GP sends you to the hospital, whereas in the future, you'll need your appendix out and the GP will go to the hospital and go, can you do this appendix? And they'll go, it'll cost £1,000 to the taxpayer. And then he'll go to the guy down the road and he'll say, I'll do it for a fiver with my chisel. You could have the Royal Mail Ambulance Service, it would take you four days to get to the hospital. And yeah. If you're ill on a Sunday, you'll never get there. You get a card to come through. Your knee operation was due today. Or it'll be like the, the train operators. It'll be all different companies, will take over different bits. You'll have a heart attack. Paramedics will will you as far as A&E, and then they'll say, uh, well, now, as you see, this ticket doesn't actually uh, get you through to the next uh, ward, you see, because you've only got a super saver. <laughs> they don't have A&E in private hospitals because it's not remunerative at all. No, there's no There's no A&E. You turn up with having had a heart attack Anyone and say, well, up. we can do you some breasts, but that's about it, really. <laughs> Chest pains will give you breasts, you know. The hospitals aren't all going to be private. It's just the private hospitals are going to be able to compete with the non-private yeah, There'll, there'll be a Tesco hospital in five years. Oh, no! Can you there'll imagine a... five organs or less aisle where... <laughs> They want patients to be more involved in the decision-making. Think, look, the reason we go to doctors is that we don't know what's wrong with us. We don't go in there and say, hello, doctor, could you distract me while I remove my gallstones? <laughs> uh, you know, and, and you think the doctor knows about medicine, not about managing. Let the doctor do the medicine. It's like receptionists. They say, could I ask you what it's about? No, not unless you are a general practitioner. No, I will discuss it with the doctor. It's none of your business. Answer the bloody phone and run messages. <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with me? You find that works. <laughs> the idea of choice, with patients more choice, you want yourself sorted. If you're lying in the road, you don't want three different ambulances turning up with a load of paramedics giving you brochures and that and thinking, oh, I don't know, St. Thomas's has got much shinier bedpan. <laughs> As you get older, you don't want choice. It's confusing. I don't like eating in restaurants anymore because you look at the menu and you think, oh, there's too many things. Things I don't know. Whatever I have will be wrong, and I wish I'd had what somebody else had. But why can't they have restaurants where they just give you your tea on your lap Jeremy, in front of the telly? 
<laughs> Jeremy, when a waiter says to you, what would you like, sir, do you say, oh, I don't know, it's not your job to ask me what I want to do, why don't you just answer the bloody phone and I'll discuss it with the chef, thank you. Just give you something to eat and say, here's your tea now, just eat that and don't moan. <laughs> You're the only person I know who's looking forward to being taken into a home. <laughs> Secretary Andrew Lansley has unveiled the Health and Social Care Bill, which proposes radical free market reforms to the NHS. Many analysts have compared the process of opening up of the NHS to private firms to the process the railways underwent after privatisation. So expect many operations to be cancelled, but the sandwiches to improve. The government has uh, made health insurance companies pay for contraception for women. Um, this also covers uh, preventative uh, care such as uh, breast screenings, uh, cervical cancer screenings, and... Um, Breast pumps, uh, breast pumps. Breast pumps. Yeah. If you do, you know, uh, I don't know. If people know. Have you ever, have you ever seen that? I, yes, I've seen a breast pump. Well, I mean, I've never seen, used one. Have but you ever I've seen, seen it in action? I have seen it in action. It's, it's a little disturbing. Yes, yes. I get news for you. If you're, if you're a new father, and uh, your wife is about to use a breast pump, leave the room. Really? Are you a new father? I was. You were. Okay. Yes. And, it's still, and it freaks and it's you out a little bit. In my, yeah. It's you don't want to no. It's just weird to have a mas machine attached to your mm, body. Like, mm, mm, <laughs> it's not, it's not, uh, no. It's not fun. No. Well, uh, Steve King is very upset at the fact that health insurance companies will now cover birth control. And, and uh, you should know that most, I mean, most insurance companies already do this. Mm -hmm. Most insurance companies already include it as part of their plan. This is just making sure that if there are any gaps, it's going to be filled. Right, exactly. Well, Steve King is actually really upset about it. And, you know, of course, there are conservatives that have moral issues with it. Um, but his, With birth control. With birth control. I know, which doesn't make any well, sense Well, they have moral issues with sex, too. They have moral issues with everything, okay? But uh, anything that's sexual, anything that's normal and human, they have an issue with. Right. But uh, I want to show you a video because he doesn't actually talk about his morality in this video. He gives other reasons why he thinks this contraception is going to be disastrous to the United States. Watch. We have people that are single. We have people that are past reproductive age. We have priests that are celibate. All of them paying insurance premiums that cover contraceptives so that somebody else doesn't have to pay the full fare of that? And they've called it preventative medicine. Preventative medicine. Well, if you apply that preventative medicine universally, what you end up with is you've prevented a generation. Preventing babies to be, from being born is not medicine. That's not, that's not constructive to our culture and our civilization. If we let our birth rate get down below the replacement rate, we're a dying civilization. We are nowhere near um, being under the replacement rate. Nowhere near. In fact, in the past 10 years, the population in the United States, in the United States alone, has increased by 10%. Overpopulation is a huge problem in the United States. But who cares? Who wants to stick to the facts? 
Well, yeah, of course not. And, you know, the other fact that he sort of did mention is not just, you know, we have this situation where, you know, single people who never use birth control and uh, married people who are presumably past the reproductive age mm -hmm. and, of course, priests who have taken a vow of celibacy, they're going to be subsidizing because there is an infinitesimal amount of money that because this this money this cost is spread out amongst all of our, uh, our premiums they're going to be subsidizing this that's unfair which I also want to say to those people who are getting uh, cancer treatment <laughs> I, I don't have cancer and so I don't want to be paying for anybody's cancer treatment what, what about it's completely unfair for people who don't get sick uh, with their health insurance because we know that 80% of health care costs are, are incurred by 20% of the population. The point is you just don't know who it is. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to be paying, you know, for Viagra, apparently. Uh, some of my uh, premium is involved in Viagra. In fact, I don't want to pay for anything that doesn't involve me. That is the Republican worldview right there. Then they're using it as an excuse, uh, essentially, to uh, carry water for their uh, right-wing freaks. That's a great point. That's a great point. And you know, another thing is, if you don't pass this legislation, right, if you don't provide access to affordable or free birth control, what happens is you have so many unwanted pregnancies in the United States that the taxpayer ends up paying for. So in the United States alone, we spend $11 billion each year on helping women with unwanted pregnancies. So uh, what about that? Are you concerned about taxpayer money going toward oh, that? Of course not. No. I mean, of course not. There's no consistency whatsoever. I mean, the bottom line, and this is probably the only legitimate argument, is that this is clearly a, uh, this is a part of uh, like a Sharia uh, law, can you know, a uh, Sharia law uh, campaign to uh, slowly stifle our civilization by, by having us, uh, you know, by providing uh, free contraceptive uh, pills. It's a way of making sure there's less uh, of our society so that Sharia law can take over. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, I that's, that's the that. one point. I'm sure, I'm sure that's what Pence was like. He's ready. He's, that's the, tomorrow, right? Or Steve King, that's what he's going to say tomorrow. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Maron, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. It's the Onion Radio News. An absent-minded professor says the cure for cancer is around here somewhere. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Johns Hopkins University professor Humbert E. Huggins revealed today that after decades of research, he has discovered a 100% infallible cure for cancer and that he is reasonably certain it is somewhere in his Baltimore, Maryland home. This is possibly the greatest medical breakthrough in history, and it's also quite possibly somewhere in a box in the dining room table or in the basement someplace. Then again, I could have set it down in the garage. The formula for the cure is said to require easily available materials costing only 
pennies and could eradicate the dreaded disease by the end of the year if it turns up somewhere. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Where did it go? Would you spend six months uninsured to qualify for affordable health coverage, Lewis? Risky. Uh, I don't know. There's a program called the Pre-Existing Condition Insurance Plan, or PCIP, and so far only about 18,000 people have signed up across the country. It's a lot fewer than the administration expected, and there's about 25 million Americans who are uninsured. About half have some kind of pre-existing condition, according to the Department of Health and Human Services. The idea is that you can sign up if you have a pre-existing condition. However, you have to have a six-month period where you don't have insurance. And obviously many people say, you know, because I have a pre-existing condition, I just can't afford to be without insurance for six months. It would be kind of like uh, playing Russian roulette. It's really a chance I can't afford to take. Now, would I spend six months uninsured to qualify for affordable health coverage? I don't know what affordable health coverage means. In other words, I have, I have health coverage now, and you I can afford it. consider it to be affordable. And I consider it to be affordable. I think a better question would be, let's say a national health care system was put into place. Would I spend six months uninsured in order to qualify for that um, or, or to be able to get on that if, if those were the requirements? You know, it, it depends what pre-existing conditions I had. Right now, I would say, yeah, you know, I would chance that this is a point where I'm relatively healthy, knock on wood, and I, I would say spending six months without insurance, that doesn't mean that I'm saying I'm guaranteeing I won't need any care. Hopefully, I just wouldn't have anything so major in those six months that I can't just pay out of pocket for it. I would, I would go with that in order to get single-payer, universal government-provided coverage after six months. I would do it right now. If I had a pre-existing condition, it's very hard to say. How expensive are those six months going to be? Um, it's a tough question, but the fact that people have to make these decisions and are put into these positions is really what's wrong with the system. Yeah, no uh, So what, elaborate a little bit, Lewis. What, do you, what would you do? Talk me through it. I mean, anything can happen. You could get into a car accident and be in the hole tens of thousands of dollars Maybe a hundred thousand. Right. It's not right? even the type of thing of are you going to get some kind of disease. It's are you crossing the street and some nut comes flying around the corner. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to predict. It's very risky. <laughs> if you don't leave the house very often, maybe maybe you'd be more uh, likely to do that. You have to weigh your your risks, I guess. But so what weigh them? I mean, it's been a while since you've last been to the doctor, I, right? I, it has. Yeah. So what, if you if someone said to you, listen, spend six months without any health coverage. And then you'll be able to buy in. It'll be twenty-five bucks a month for the rest of your life. I don't know, just to throw something out there. Would you say, yeah, I'm going to go the six months without it? I probably would because I feel like I'm in a position right now that even if something bad did happen, it wouldn't completely ruin my life. I'm I'm kind of in the same mindset. If I was given that opportunity now, I, I would probably do it. I watch the smoke.
I'm Lee Camp, and this is your moment of clarity. I had to call my insurance company yesterday because, get this, they had charged me for something I shouldn't have been charged for. It was the damnedest thing. And during this conversation, the woman, who I can only assume eats live bunny rabbits in her spare time, began saying, Lee, this is not a disputable charge. Lee? You're going to call me Lee? Like I'm your bestie or your nephew or your neighbor who owns two cats but no kids? So whenever you run into him on the street, you say, how are the kids? Referring to the cats, and the two of you laugh and laugh and laugh. Are you fucking serious? I only let two people call me Lee, my mother and the guy who does my Brazilian. And by my Brazilian, I mean my 18-year-old Brazilian daughter. That's it. Those are the only people. No exceptions. So you can call me by my official name, Sir Lord Dr. Camp Earl of Essex Esquire. I didn't spend 15 months in medical school and two years at a renaissance fair to be called Lee. But the truth is, it's not just disrespectful, it's a psychological strategy about how to get you, the patient, to give up and stop arguing as quickly as possible. They've brought in professionals to teach them all the tricks, and one of the tricks is to call you by your first name, because then you stop feeling like an adult. You start feeling like a little kid, a little kid who's being yelled at by their douchebag parent who won't give them health coverage. They're using psychological tricks to ensure that the two of you don't have an honest discussion. Instead, it's all set up like a game and not a fun kind of game like, ha ha ha, I sunk your battleship, but a sad kind of game like, ha ha ha, we're not going to cover your lung transplant, so breathe shallow, motherfucker. Breathe shallow. It's more like the game Sorry, where you yell Sorry just before you destroy someone's chances of winning. And in this case, chances of winning means chances of surviving. Or maybe it's like that game Twister, because you think it's all going well, and then you realize they have a vice grip on your ball sack like a python who thought he's caught a balding mouse, and you can't even figure out whose hand it is that's doing the squeezing. Give me an honest discussion about exactly how much of a dickwad you are. That's all I ask. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. Today's story is called, Repeal This, a pre-existing health condition study says half the country is uninsurable, and it's written by Timothy Noah. In 1937, President Franklin D. Roosevelt said in his second inaugural address, I see one-third of a nation ill-housed, ill-clad, ill-nourished. One-third was, as Paul Krugman points out in his book, The Conscience of a Liberal, 
a guess rather than a statistic, because the U.S. government had not yet calculated what the poverty line was, much less how many people were situated below it. Nevertheless, the speech helped Roosevelt consolidate support for the New Deal and cement a three-decade realignment of presidential politics. Now, with House Republicans pushing to repeal the 2010 Health Reform Bill, the Health and Human Services Department has done Roosevelt one better by releasing a short paper that states up to half of all Americans have pre-existing conditions that make it either impossible or very expensive for them to obtain health insurance in the private non-group market. That statistic could help President Obama consolidate support for health reform, and maybe his own re-election. This time out, a 30-year Democratic realignment of presidential politics probably isn't in the cards. The health insurance industry says the statistic is an unfair exaggeration, and Representative Louis Gohmert, a Republican of Texas, says the claim is not only wrong, but offensive. But the lobbyists and the hard-right GOP hacks are wrong. Before we dive into the numbers, here's why they matter. Currently, health insurers are able to refuse coverage to people with pre-existing medical conditions, as defined by the insurer. Or, they're able to grant coverage, but charge people with pre-existing coverage much higher premiums. Or, they're able to grant coverage and charge normal premiums, with the stipulation that they will not provide coverage to treat the pre-existing condition that the patient has acknowledged. Insurers don't typically pull any of these tricks in the large group market, for instance, the health insurance you get at the office. But in the individual market, or health insurance you buy for yourself, they pull these tricks all the time. Under health reform, insurers won't be able to do any of these things starting in 2014. How many people will be affected? The new HHS paper says that somewhere between 50 million and 129 million Americans below the age of 65 have pre-existing conditions. That represents 19% to 50% of the U.S. population under 65. If HHS were to include people 65 or older, the numbers and the proportions would be higher, because older people are much likelier to have pre-existing conditions than younger people. But HHS excluded this group because it's irrelevant to this discussion. Starting at age 65, everybody is eligible for government-funded health insurance under Medicare, regardless of any pre-existing conditions. 50 million to 129 million is a range big enough to arouse suspicion, but it reflects, if anything, an excess of caution on the part of HHS, which made not one calculation, but two. The smaller 50 million figure is based on criteria for admission to the 19 high-risk pools run by the states prior to passage of health reform. These criteria vary, but HHS borrowed its methodology from the Lewin Group, a respected health research firm and one that happens to be owned by United Health, a major health insurer. This past spring, the Lewin Group was commissioned by Families USA, a liberal nonprofit, to calculate the number of Americans under 65 who had pre-existing conditions. Lewin looked at the 19 state high-risk pools, which were established explicitly to provide health coverage to people who couldn't receive it, or couldn't receive it affordably because they had pre-existing conditions. Lewin figured any pre-existing condition that qualified you automatically for admission to five or more of these state risk pools had to be pretty serious. As a rule, states weren't keen to let too many people into these risk pools because they were very expensive to run. Lewin counted 69 such conditions. Then, Lewin calculated how many people nationwide under the age of 65 had these conditions. 
That turned out to be 57.2 million. HHS, making the same calculations, identified an apparent error that Lewin made. Lewin said a certain level of obesity qualified you for automatic admission to at least five of the state risk pools, when, according to HHS, it did not. The HHS calculation was therefore a slightly lower 50 million. The trouble with the 50 million figure is that insurers will refuse coverage or charge a much higher premium for a lot more than just the 68 very serious conditions that won you automatic admission to five or more of the state risk pools. If you don't believe me when I say these are very serious conditions, we're talking about AIDS, brain tumors, Hodgkin's disease, and more. A high level of obesity is a good example. It may not have gotten you automatic admission to a state high-risk pool, but there is a pretty good chance it would screw your chances of getting non-group insurance at a reasonable price. Here's what HHS did to come up with its higher figure, the one that represents half of all Americans under 65. It checked the underwriting guidelines for non-group plans run by various private health insurers, some of which are available on the web. In doing so, it found a whole lot more than just 68 pre-existing conditions that jacked up your premiums or denied you health insurance altogether. Let me give you a few examples from the private non-group health plans that HHS looked at. HealthNet's automatic declines. These are the conditions that get you refused any coverage at all, never mind the ones that jack up your premiums. Number 120. United Healthcare's comparable deal killers, number nearly 200. Humana One's five-page deal killer list was so long that I lost patients counting. Given such numbers, HHS showed some restraint in adding, for the second calculation, a mere 11 pre-existing conditions to its previous list of 68. These were, in addition to extreme obesity, arthritis, asthma, high cholesterol, hypertension, and a few garden-variety psychological disorders. When these 11 were added in, the 50 million Americans with pre-existing conditions ballooned plausibly to 129 million, or 50% of the population under 65. Is HHS saying that half the population currently can't get health insurance or can't get it for less than a king's ransom? Not precisely. A lot of these people get health insurance through their employer's group plans. That's how most people get their health insurance. But within this large subset, anyone who quits his job or gets fired had better hope that another large company will hire him, because if he ends up unemployed or self-employed, or working as a consultant or an individual contractor to one or more businesses on a non-staff basis, then he will either be refused non-group health insurance outright or pay a lot more for it than everybody else. To put it another way, up to half of all Americans are stuck in their current jobs because if they leave, they'll likely find it very, very difficult to buy affordable health insurance. I see one half of a nation getting screwed one way or another simply because it enjoys less than perfect health. Obamacare will make this group's lives substantially better starting in 2014. Maybe not all these 129 million voted in the 2010 election. Maybe some of them are even Republicans. But if the GOP succeeds in denying them health reform this year, I would guess that they'll probably vote in 2012.
health care plan for the uh, 9-11 first responders was passed, if you guys can remember. Of course, Republicans didn't want to pass it. Democrats wanted to pass it, but they didn't really fight for it. In the end, finally, because of John, St uh, John Stewart uh, shedding light on the issue, 9-11 first responders did get health coverage uh, for the health issues that they had while they were uh, cleaning up the debris, looking for survivors, that type of thing. Okay, hold, pause there for a second to remember how that story went down. Because it shows you how unbelievably radical the Republicans are, what hypocrites they are. Because they, oh, 9-11, 9-11. And the guys got sick cleaning up 9-11. They're like, oh yeah, screw them, we don't want to give them money. And they said, Obama, we'll give you the money if you give us tax cuts for the rich. They held the 9-11 responders hostage, and that was one of the big victories that Obama got. Uh, to get to when he traded away the tax cuts for the rich. And even that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for John Stewart highlighting it. I give him the most credit. Right. Uh, Shep Smith on Fox News actually did a really great job with it. And then the third guy and the one politician who fought the hardest for it was Anthony Weiner. So he's no longer with us. Another one of the guys was on Fox News, and the third one's a comedian. Okay, otherwise this wouldn't even happen. Right. So it did pass, which is a good thing. However, now we're finding out that these 9-11 first responders will not get treated if they develop cancer. Now, this was the main reason why this type of legislation passed in the first place, or at least I thought. Now, of course, the 9-11 first responders are cleaning up the debris. They weren't given um, protective masks, so they kept breathing in all of this harmful debris and all these toxins. And as a result, some of them developed lung cancer, some of them developed bone marrow cancer, right? So uh, now w what they're saying is, look, we're not going to treat them and we're not going to cover them if they have cancer because there's no causal relationship. We haven't found a causal link yet. Yeah. You know, look, I got mixed feelings on this, uh, to be honest, because on the one hand, I say, look, you need, you need evidence, right? So what if they said, oh, I'm balding? And, that's, and I don't mean to minimize it like that. Cancer is incredibly serious. And a lot of causal links have been shown with really, really serious illnesses around 9-11, right? But if you can't connect it to, I get why they might not want to fund it. And, but do, and also keep in mind, Anna, hold on. Over $4 billion have already been assigned to this, $4.2 So it's not like they're going to spend less money. It's the money's already assigned to it, right? Now, having said that, when you read some of the cases, you're like... Okay. Really? It's not connected? Yeah, okay. Here's here's how much I care about the scientific evidence in this case. Zero. Oh. These people these people put their lives on the line. These are police officers, these are firefighters, these are people who risk their own lives to help victims of 9-11. Okay, some of them died, some of them developed cancer, some of them have other health issues, right? I don't care about the scientific data in this case. Okay, these are American heroes in my eyes, and they should be taken care of by our federal government. That's the way I see it, okay? And by the way, the cancers that they're developing are extremely rare. These bone marrow cancers are so rare that doctors are saying, no, 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 this isn't something that happens all the time. So many of these people who are 9-11 first responders develop this bone marrow cancer. So whether or not there's a scientific study that shows the cause in a very clear and concise way, it doesn't matter. It's, it's right. obvious. It's so so I want to clarify a couple of things there. All right. So number one, a lot of the doctors are saying these guys getting these kind of cancer this young is very uncommon, right? So you, you see anecdotal evidence like that. And I, what Anna's saying is not caring about the scientific evidence, not overall, but within the time frame that we have, right? So are we going to do a 10-year, 20-year study to find it's too late, then the guys are dead, right? And here's my overall point. As I said, I had mixed feelings on it. But my overall conclusion is, look, even if we get it slightly wrong, 
and we pay for some of the cancer treatment that we quote unquote shouldn't have paid for, what's the big harm? Right? I mean, these guys stepped up and they got cancer. This decent evidence, you know, even if one doctor who was the head of the study is not convinced, there's decent evidence that they got the cancer because of this. And if we screw up and we treat a couple of cancer patients by mistake, I can live with that. Do you know how much worthless crap we spend our tax dollars on on a, on a yearly basis, okay? This is the last thing that I'm concerned about. Even if there's no scientific data, even if there's evidence suggesting that, you know, the 9-11 first responders did not get cancer from the cleanup efforts, I still wouldn't care. I really wouldn't. And maybe maybe that makes me extreme in this case, and maybe that makes me radical in this case. But I don't know. That's the way I feel about it. I, I have absolutely no problem knowing that some of my tax dollars went toward this. Vermont has passed their single-payer health care bill. Similarly to when Massachusetts passed gay marriage, the world didn't end. Now, of course, the bill hasn't been enacted yet. We still have, it could be 2017. There is an, uh, the, Vermont is asking the, the Obama administration to allow them to opt out of the federal health care reform law by 2014. Like I said, like I wrote in my newspaper column last month, like we've been talking about on the show, insurers lobbyists and pharmaceutical companies will do everything they can still to prevent this from happening or to do everything to keep it as small and insignificant as possible not because of the profits that come from Vermont which has about a six hundred and twenty five thousand people living there but because it is opening up the door as precedent to say you know what single payer works regardless of all of the campaigning about we're going to lose our freedoms so-called government-run plans, socialism, communism. Regardless of all of that, the insurance companies, as Wendell Potter told us a few weeks ago on the show, actually know that this could work, and therefore it will become significant precedent in other states. What do you, ex you I expect to see all of the stops pulled out, Lewis, on this by insurance companies. What do you think? Yeah, no doubt, but um, and unfortunately... It looks like there will be plenty of time for them to quash this. Not a single, this plan. not a single Republican in the Vermont House, and only one Republican in the Vermont Senate supported this bill. No surprise, ladies and gentlemen. While on many issues there is not a significant difference between between Republicans and Democrats, this is a difference that is important because this is a big deal. Green Mountain Care is what it's going to be called. We're hearing from doctors they would love to move and actually work under this system because they can actually treat people rather than have a paperwork job. Mm -hmm. We're hearing people saying they would move to Vermont because of this. I think this is a big deal.
I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the Onion Radio News. The FDA approves the sale of prescription placebo. This is Doyle Redland reporting. After more than four decades of testing in tandem with other drugs, placebo was given the green light for prescription use from the Food and Drug Administration in Washington today. The go-ahead for the white crystalline substance obtained from the Saccharum officinarum plant was announced by the FDA's Dr. Jonathan Bergen. Placebo has been successful in the treatment of everything from lower back pain to erectile dysfunction to nausea. That's the beauty and the mystery of placebo. It's all-purpose, like aspirin, but without any of the side effects. The FDA has approved placebo in dosages ranging from 1 to 400,000 milligrams. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Just take the hook on the tree. Hats off to Vermont. The legislature there just passed universal health care, and the governor is expected to sign it into law within the next two weeks. It's called Green Mountain Care, and it'll provide comprehensive, high-quality coverage for all Vermont residents as a public good, regardless of income, health status, or employment, and regardless of immigration status, too. Some legislators tried to pass an amendment that would have excluded undocumented people from being able to benefit from universal health care in Vermont. But mobilization from activists was decisive in defeating this amendment, even amidst the anti-immigrant sentiment that prevails in this country. So that's a double victory for the people of Vermont. And credit goes to the excellent job that organizers did there. Here's how James Haslam, director of the Vermont Workers' Center, puts it. Our success, he says, shows that when people come together, make their voices heard, and demand their rights, we can overcome well-funded special interests and change what's politically possible. I like that. Changing what's politically possible. That's what we need to do around the country. And once again, Vermont is showing us the way. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
State politics are astounding right now. I mean, the federal story of the last election was Republicans taking over the House in D.C. But coast to coast, the story of the last election is really what happened in this hard right turn in the states, in the state legislatures and in the governorships. Probably more than any other national news outlet, we at this show confess to being transfixed by what Republicans have been doing in the states this year. It has been an amazing year of quite radical Republican state politics. But very quietly, in the midst of all the din of what the red states are doing, blue states have been sort of happily plugging along, making absolutely no national news at all, doing stuff that goes in a completely different direction than the red states that are getting all the attention. Today in Vermont, for example, the state Senate voted 29 to 9 to create a single-payer health care system for the state. This has already passed the Vermont House. It just passed the Senate. There were different amendments, and the two versions passed, so they'll need to work out a conference version between the two houses. But then single-payer health care will be on its way to Vermont's governor, who is also a Democrat and who campaigned on passing this. Vermont would create a state-based exchange, as imagined under federal health reform, but at the same time, they'd also work from a plan developed by one of the architects of Medicare to create, in essence, a Medicare-for-all system for Vermont. It would cover everybody in the state. It would take the insurance companies out of the driver's seat. Uh, Vermont would need waivers from the federal government in order to do this. Vermont's governor told Congress a week and a half ago that he is already eager to start begging for those waivers so Vermont can go ahead. With really no other national attention other than, I mean, other than this, it kind of seems like Vermont is really doing this. I sort of feel like I should be quiet about it. Joining us now by phone is the governor of the great state of Vermont, uh, Peter Shumlin. Governor, I want to thank you for making time for us. I'm sorry that we can't see you live as we had planned, but I understand that the weather gods are not cooperating with us tonight. Well, that's what I hear, but it's wonderful to be with you, Rachel. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, the, the state Senate uh, in Vermont has just voted overwhelmingly uh, to pass what looks like a single-payer health care plan uh, for the state of Vermont. Is that the way that the country should understand what's happening in Vermont? Are you moving towards single-payer? Absolutely. We really are. We believe we'll be the first state in the country that passes a health care system that really does a few things. First, treats health care as a right and not a privilege. Second, we want health care to follow the individual and not be a requirement of the employer, which we think will be a huge jobs creator. And finally, we want an affordable quality care system where everybody is covered. After this vote today um, in the Senate, I realize the legislative process uh, is not over. There's still work to be done. Are, are you confident that you will end up signing this bill, that you'll get the kind of bill that you campaigned on, and it will be something that you will make into law? Absolutely. Mm. Okay. In terms of getting the federal waivers that you need here in order to enact this, even if you do make it Vermont state law, uh, President Obama told all the governors in the country, including you, that waivers would be available three years earlier than health reform originally promised if a state's plan uh, covers as many people as federal health reform with at least the same level of coverage in a way that doesn't add to the federal deficit. Um, it's nice to have the option, I imagine, to do this early, but are you confident that you can meet all of those those standards? Well, I am. And, you know, I keep telling folks here that I think that the waivers from Washington uh, are the least difficult part. Frankly, the difficult part is to design the first health care system in America that makes sense, uh, that does treat health care as a right, not a privilege, but also that is affordable. And, you know, the story in Vermont is not unlike the other 49 states. I just see this as a critical ingredient in creating jobs and economic opportunity. Health care premiums are killing my businesses. They're killing middle class Vermonters. We have health care premiums rising at a rate that is not sustainable. And so what we're trying to do is 
have an affordable system uh, that applies to all Vermonters, gives us all quality health care, but spends our dollars on health care, not on insurance company profits, on waste, on collecting money, and the tremendous inefficiencies in the American system. I'm convinced that if we can design that system, we can get the waivers from Washington, and we will. First of all, the president has been extraordinarily cooperative in saying, hey, I believe the states should be the laboratories for change, and I want you to be, as long as you don't reduce standards, which we're not. So it's actually a fairly Republican argument that we're making, which is, hey, federal government, let us go our own way. We're not asking for one additional dollar. We're just asking that you allow us to spend our dollars the way we wish. And I think we can get there. Vermont already has better access to health insurance uh, than most other states, thanks in part to government action to make sure that uh, kids are covered, to make sure that people are covered um, uh, based on their income more broadly than they are in many other states. Is the way that you are um, explaining this to Vermonters, the way that this is being debated, what you think you're going to come up with, something that can broadly be understood as Medicare for all? Will it be a familiar-seeming program like that for people who understand what Medicare is? Absolutely. It really is Medicaid for all, publicly financed, following the individual, a right and not a privilege. Are you, um, I don't mean to be weird, but are you worried at all about talking about this out loud? <laughs> is this, has, this, has this been easier to do in Vermont because you have not been the focus of national attention for this so far? Well, you know, it, it, we haven't done it yet. We're making great progress and we're going to get there. But I think the story to tell when we get there and we will is that healthcare change, real change, to get America on the same footing as the other developed countries who are eating our, jo- our lunch on jobs and other economic opportunities is going to come from the small states for the simple reason that we don't have the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance companies, the folks that are making so much profit off our illness here in Vermont with huge lobbying campaigns. They just don't really notice us all that much. So we're thinking that we can get this done. We know we can. And I've always believed that real health care reform will come from the smaller states who aren't who are not so beholden to these for-profit corporations, but who actually work for their citizens. And, you know, health care is important. But the other challenge here and the reason it's going to happen is our health care system in Vermont is not sustainable. Uh, we're losing our rural health care providers. They can't live under the reimbursement system where they get 40 cents on a dollar from one patient and 50 from another and you know occasionally someone comes into the provider's office or the doctor's office and gives them a dollar for a dollar's work you know they ought to have a halo on their head uh, we're losing our small hospitals they're having trouble balancing their budgets so we've got to use our health care dollars for health care get the insurance companies off our health care providers backs we have a quality system we've just got to make it affordable and we think we can now the math works like this 10 years ago this little state was spending 2.5 billion dollars collectively on health care. Today we're spending $5 billion, and my folks tell me that we'll be spending another $1.6 billion by 2015 if we don't make real change, if we don't go to a single-payer system. That's huge money. That's $2,500 every year out of the pocket of every single living Vermonter in a state where our incomes on average are stagnant. They're the same as they were 10 years ago. So we've got to get this done for financial reasons, for ethical reasons. I think the Green Mountain State will be the first to get it done. Governor Peter Shumlin of Vermont, uh, I know this vote was important to you today, sir, so congratulations on that, and and thanks for taking time to discuss it with us. Really appreciate it, sir. Thanks so much for having us on.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. We have a problem. We need to solve it. This comment by House Speaker Shap Smith of Vermont reflects a no-nonsense, hands-on, can-do attitude you don't often find in legislatures these days. Instead, when most so-called leaders are confronted with a problem, they tend to say, we need to cover it up or we need to turn it into a political football. But Smith and a big majority of his Vermont colleagues refuse to play games with one of the biggest issues confronting them and the people of every state. Affordable health care for all. They knew that the current high-cost, low-quality, you're-on-your-own system was literally killing people, even as it was draining the budgets of governments and businesses. Costs of health care in Vermont have doubled in the last decade to roughly $5 billion a year and continue to go up by a million dollars a day, even as 47,000 Vermonters have no coverage and most others have only DGS health insurance. Don't get sick. Angry about this, a strong grassroots campaign for universal health care has been steadily building across Vermont, culminating this year in H-202. This bill would establish a state health exchange authorized to set up a single-payer-style health care system dubbed Green Mountain Care. The bill faced the usual opposition from special interests and know-nothings. One House Republican decried the very idea of universal coverage as, quote, the keystone in the arch of socialism. But with stout public support, Green Mountain Care passed the House 92 to 49 and the Senate 21 to 9. On May 26th, Governor Pete Shumlin, who had made this issue central in his campaign last year, signed the bill, making Vermont first in the nation to go to the core of reform by enacting a single-payer law. This is Jim Hightower saying, for information, go to vermontforsinglepayer.com. Be here now, no other place to be, or just sit there dreaming of how life would be, if we were somewhere better, somewhere far, away from all our Rob Woodall is now congressman from Georgia, and he held a town hall event. A woman got up and asked him, hey, what am I supposed to do under your Republican plan where you guys would phase out Medicare, right? Because, I mean, you, you would, Medicare would still give me a small voucher, but I couldn't pay my bills. She says, look, I, I retired, so I don't get insurance anymore for my company. Like, you want me to do employer-based health insurance, but I'm retired, so what, what am I supposed to do? Which I think is a great question, right? 
And here was his initial response. Clip five. Hear yourself, and it's just a difference of opinion. We can agree and disagree. You want your government benefits. You want the government to take care of you. But as your employer decided not to take care of you. My question is, when do I decide I'm going to take care of me? gave him significant applause there as you heard a lot of people were upset by the answer uh, but think about that answer for a second he says what are you going to take care of yourself basically but wait a minute she paid into Medicare <laughs> so she is taking care of herself now why would you cut her Medicare payments if she paid into Medicare that doesn't make any sense he just doesn't want that government program at all he wants to turn it into a private program and he doesn't give a damn if you can't pay your bills or if you're 70 years old or 80 years old or 90 years old and no insurance company will cover you because they think you're too much of a risk he doesn't care he's got an ideology that says everything must be private everything the government does is wrong plus he gets campaign donations from people who want to convert everything into a private system so that they profit off of it so she says how am I gonna get the insurance and he says go eat dirt I don't care go take care of yourself but she's like, but I did, I paid into Medicare. I don't care, I'm gonna take it away from you anyway. Now, here comes the second level of callousness. Woman gets up and asks him about his free government-run health insurance. You're gonna love his answer, let's watch. All right, I have a question about taking care of you. You get government um, subsidized health care, but you are not obligated to take that if you don't want to. Why aren't you going out on the free market in the state where you're a resident and buy your own health care? Use as an, be an example. Your question is, my government's willing to give me lots and lots of stuff for free. No, you lead by example. No, you lead by example. Why aren't you leading by example and go and get it in a single subscriber plan like you want everybody else to have? Because you want to end employer-sponsored health plans and government-sponsored health plans. You said so in a letter to me that your goal is to get rid of the employer-sponsored health plans. Okay, well, so why aren't you leading by example and go out yourself? Decline the government health plan and go to the you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield or whoever and get one for yourself and you'll see how tough it is. And you don't have any pre-existing conditions, I guess. You haven't had any life-threatening illnesses like I had last year. This is how it's good to have these conversations. You know, but you have to answer the question. Why haven't you gone out and Oh, I'm sorry, I thought I did. It's because it's free. It's because it's free. The same reason I like all brands and bought Acumon when I don't have any arthritis band. Because it's free. That's great. So he says, look, I'm a congressman. It's free to me. You continue to eat dirt. Okay. She says, but look, you even said, one, you don't believe in government-run insurance. You have government-run insurance. Number two, apparently he even said that he was, I guess, employer-based insurance. And that's your employer. The reason it's free to you is because the government is your employer. So, but if you don't believe in that, why don't you go get insurance on your own? He's like, what do you think, I'm a sucker? Why do you think I became a congressman? No, 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 I get it for free. You get bupkis. And you paid into it, but who cares? I don't care that you paid into it. Here's another mound of dirt. Enjoy. Look, that's the Republican ideology. If you like that, okay. You know, where they 
tell you, go take care of yourself. I don't give a damn what you paid into or you didn't pay into. I don't care if you can or can't get insurance. I got mine for free from the government. You. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Jay. Uh, this is Tony Lagasse. I'm calling from Dearborn, Michigan. I'm working on the Snyder recall and repeal of Public Act 4 here in Michigan. And I just wanted to call and let you and your listeners know that we are busting our asses here in Michigan to get this man out of office. We've gotten um, no support from the Michigan Democratic Party. And we have, we're starting to get, um, more union, official union, uh, support, but it's slow coming. Our organization is grassroots, volunteer based. We've gotten, uh, roughly $25,000 in donations, and that's what we are working with. We started in May and got off to sort of a slow start from May through June. But in the month of July, we were able to collect 300,000 signatures, and we are gaining momentum. So I just wanted to call and let you guys know that we are out here in Michigan. Any support or volunteers we can get, we'd uh, appreciate. Our website is firericksnyder.org, and we have a hotline for people in-state looking for places to sign or volunteer, and that is 855 855- so fired 855 S O F I R E D. All right, thanks. Hi, Jay. My name is Ramon. I'm calling from Portland, Oregon. I love what you do. I've been motivated somewhat to call every now and then, but when I heard Beth from New Brunswick talk about campaign finance reform, I, I had to call in and say that I'm completely behind this. I've been I've been talking to my friends and really anyone who will listen to me that this is the issue under so many of our country's problems, uh, from anywhere from the propagation of wars all over the country to the topic tonight, the war on drugs, healthcare itself, uh, and and all the problems that go along with it. The, it. the the real problem is that corporatism has overtaken both parties of our country. And we need to take our nation back from the corporations. And really, what it comes down to is a separation not of church and state, but of money and state. Because money is, for all intents and purposes, the religion of America. So, you know, (laughs) disestablishmentarianism for a new age. Uh, Separate money and power and bring power back to the people. I, I salute Beth. Uh, I, I, I mean, campaign finance reform, when you frame it that way, doesn't sound very sexy. So I, I look to someone to someone better uh, than Beth and I who can, who can make it sound uh, just a little more sellable to the American people. But honestly, that is the real problem. Anyway, uh, like I said, love what you do. Keep it up and um, take care.
Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So the, the veganism voicemails are getting out of control. They're, we're, we're fighting a losing battle here. They're coming in faster than I can play them. Uh, we will never, ever get through all of them. That's a uh, simple fact at the moment. If you're going to call in about that or anything, any any voicemail, you know the, the the outgoing message. When you call in, you hear me saying, you know, leave a message and you know a couple of instructions or whatever, and and I believe that I say please keep it short. Seriously, please keep it short. Um, when when I don't have that many voicemails to play, which is usually the case, I don't have to be so strict on it. But when um, you know at a time like this, I literally have an hour of veganism voicemails and um and like 25 minutes of those voicemails are from three people (laughs) so you know those aren't going to get played frankly please keep your messages short and i'll i'll continue to get through them i really really appreciate and i'm happy that i can say uh, that not a single person has written or commented or called or done anything to complain about me playing these voicemails. You know, a lot of people find it to be an irritating subject that they don't want to particularly listen to. And, you know, 10 minutes of voicemails at the end of the show every time. If you don't want to hear it, it's kind of irritating. Uh, so I, I get that. But no, not a single person has complained. I appreciate that. I do put all of this stuff at the very, very end for that incredibly specific reason. So you can skip right over it if you don't want to hear it. And so if you don't want to hear it, please continue uh, to skip ahead. Now, I did want to you know, make a substantive point about something else, uh, though. Um, in response to the, the voicemail that came in uh, talking about uh, campaign finance reform, I do regularly, you know, like, unfortunately, it just doesn't kind of allow itself to come up on the show as often as it should. If I was the person who, you know, if I was doing an hour of commentary and that's what the show was, which is me talking, campaign finance reform would come up a lot. Uh, when I'm out in the real world, world and I talk politics with people and they, and they ask me, you know, what, what's my pet, you know, issue or whatever, I will, I will regularly tell them that the sexiest issue is uh, campaign finance reform, which is kind of a joke because it sounds like the least sexy thing in the world. But that coupled with the the campaign to uh, amend the Constitution, to repeal corporate personhood, are the, the two things that are such fundamental building blocks towards change that, uh, you know, if I could only focus on two things, that would basically be it. You know, I used to work in climate change, and the argument my, my boss would make very eloquently was that if you can only – if you can only focus your attention on one thing, climate change should be it because it's so big, it's so fundamental, it's so, you know, it touches so many parts of our lives and fixing it also fixes so many different things. It has uh, what he referred to as um, a multiplier effect. You know, solving uh, dirty energy solves, you know, a, an enormous array of, of, you know, other problems like a domino effect. And so he would make the argument, you know, climate change should be the thing you focus on. And I think that's true in a global sense, but in an American-centric uh, point of view, we don't have the political capacity to handle a problem like climate change because our system is broken. And fixing that system 
means campaign finance reform and repealing por- corporate personhood. That's that's what I think. So uh, you know, I I would basically agree with his assessment that climate change is the most important issue in the world. Uh, we just don't have the tools to solve that yet, unfortunately, and we may very well be screwed because of it. So yes, please fight on, move forward, campaign finance reform and repealing corporate personhood. Uh, if, if you're only going to focus on two things, I think those should be it. So that's going to be it for today. Of course, I'm going to thank a couple of members. Uh, Lynn H. signed up uh, back on August 25th, 2010, uh, uh, left this yearly membership, which just renewed a few days ago. So uh, thank you very much, Lynn, uh, for sticking with it. And Kate A. Uh, signed up with a very generous communist membership and paid for a full year in advance back on June 24th. So uh, Lynn and Kate and all the members and donors who, who support the show, I couldn't do it without you guys. I, you know, I thank you. In every episode, and I, I always fear that my thanks, uh, because I do it so often, that it could kind of lose its edge and it could sound, you know, repetitive and mindless and not uh, not mindful. But uh, seriously, I mean, I'm uh, literally able to make this show uh, as often as I am because of you guys. You know, if if it weren't for you, you guys would all be getting you know maybe one show a week uh, on a good week. So thank you very much for allowing me to do this. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it. Please keep spreading the word about the individual clips, which you can share through social media and uh, you know, or just regular email or whatever you like uh, through links. Very, very simple at bestoftheleft.com. You can also donate your Twitter and Facebook accounts through the website. Uh, just click on the big banner. Details about that whole program will be right there. You can read through and know exactly what you're getting yourself into. Of course, you can also join up with the show to stay tuned in between episodes directly on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fight, Jay, it's Jason from Marshalltown, Iowa. Uh, just listening to an episode where you had a bunch of uh, callers on voicemail. Apparently, you had Citizen Radio on a while back talking about veganism. I'm kind of lost in this fray. I'm trying to get caught up on things. But I, I listened to that, and I was wanting to say, um, with the whole moral angle of it, it's also the thing of is you're not going to break into veganism overnight. It's not easy for a family of four it's not even easy for one person to not use anything in animal products. Not saying it can't be done, but it just takes a long time for some people to do it. It's not a switch you can turn on overnight. And I'm I'm trying to get my family to get off of anything 
processed. I, I figure at least at the start of it, we're trying to be healthy with not eating processed foods. We're trying to be healthy with eating less animal products. And eventually the goal is to take that number down to zero. However, my wife has made it perfectly adamantly clear that she cannot get rid of dairy because that's her comfort food she goes to in a time of stress eating. Uh, now, stress eating, not healthy, but we're, but she doesn't overeat in quantities. But hey, we're, we're trying to make it. And I mean, it's, it's all a moral turpitude kind of thing. All we're trying to do is just trying to do something better that we can on this planet. And if we can't achieve it in this lifetime, then at the very least, we've made the valiant effort to try to change something. Thanks a lot, Jay. Uh, glad I got to call you for the first time. Um, keep doing the show because uh, I'm getting back into it as well as Citizen Radio, and I love it. Thanks a lot, man. You're a great voice out there. Hey, this is Dee from Chicago, and this is a comment concerning the uh, empathy veganism comment. Uh, I remember on Citizen Radio not too long ago, they had an animal activist uh, by the name of Peter Young that they did an interview on. And it is a really fascinating interview. I suggest anybody go back in their archives and listen to it. But basically what I pulled out of that uh, that made me a little uncomfortable was he was promoting violent action against um, organizations that he saw that tortured animals. And I guess that he sort of justified it in the way that the violence he was doing against these places was in conjunction with the violence that they were doing against animals. And basically, uh, comments that he said that made me uncomfortable was talking about breaking into animal rights, testing facilities, uh, me advocated burning down slaughterhouses, maybe jokingly. I forget. Uh, I'm probably misquoting him, so please go back and listen to that interview. Uh, but basically, uh, that whole comment about empathy made me think about where my empathetic tendencies lie. And I, I wanted to talk about something, namely animal testing. I, I know that's something that gets a lot of people banned up. Uh, but basically, a animal testing is something that I... I kind of support on a case-by-case -case basis. And by this I mean that, you know, I don't, I don't really care if maybe a million lab rats have to die if that research goes towards maybe giving a veteran who lost the ability to walk in Iraq, gives him the ability to run, walk, go upstairs, and then make love again. I mean, that's... It, it basically the way that I see it is uh, I am sort of a human first kind of guy even though I am trying to move to a more vegetarian even more vegan lifestyle and th there was something else uh, I, I commented this on their message board and I said something about how you know I, I like to fish uh, I, and when I'm fishing up in the boundary waters in, in Quetico, uh you know I, I, will, I will catch fish and I will kill them and I will eat them and, and, and I got some support and I got a, a, a little bit of heat for it. Um, but the way I, I see it is that it's sort of almost natural in a way because I do view humans as opportunistic omnivores, meaning that they can go to a completely herbivore diet. I mean, we have the science to prove that plants can provide everything, every sort of nutrient to us that animals can. Uh, but if you know, you need to eat meat, you have the ability to eat meat and digest meat. You know, I, I don't consider myself that much of an eat meater, I mean, a, a meat eater. <laughs> I, I, I typically only eat seafood, 
if given the opportunity, I mean, I won't go to a restaurant and order salmon, but if I catch the fish myself, I'll, I'll, I'll eat it. But basically that whole thing about empathy made me sort of re-examine how I, I thought about those things, but uh, it also made me reinforce my positions. It's, it was really a fascinating, interesting discussion. Um, I really like your show. Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, take it easy. Keep it sleazy. Good morning, Jay. This is Curtis from Baltimore, calling on a day before we get smashed by Hurricane Irene. I'm calling to respond to the uh, the vegan carnivore omnivore debate. Uh, full disclosure: uh, I support Citizen Radio uh, monetarily. I also uh, contribute to your show, and I'm very proud to do so. Uh, I am an omnivore, uh, but I'm not a jerk. <laughs> so, I you know I, I have a lot of respect for for people's dietary decisions, and uh, since I've been listening to citizen radio and your show i've started to rethink a lot about what i eat i've stopped eating eggs i get all of my uh my animal products from local farms at farmers markets that whole happy meat argument you know i don't know where i stand on it now i'm just rambling anyway those are just my thoughts thanks Hey, Jay, this is Rebecca in Buffalo. I love this show, but that guy who had his name bleeped out was absolutely disturbing. Like, harassed in an alley, sort of disturbing. Need to take a shower, disturbing. I, I don't know that I've ever heard such a decided lack of compassion. But, I mean, seriously, this guy on the left, where does he come from? Anyway, if he's on our team, I'm not playing. I don't want to be around people like that. And Yuck. Anyway, um... Anyway, thanks, Jay. Bye. Now, just real quick, I actually heard from the anonymous voicemailer directly, and uh, he had this message. I don't know why he didn't leave it in a voicemail, uh, as he obviously could have, um, but he wrote it, and he asked me to pass it along. He says, uh, by the way, I would love to not be anonymous, but am contractually prohibited from talking to the media by my employment. So that is just his direct statement, and thank you for what it's worth. Hi, Jay. This is your friend Anonymous calling back, and I wanted to just... I mean, we got one person to call me a lunatic. Oh, my gosh. I have more of my friends call me a lunatic than that. Anyway, I just wanted to uh, make a couple of points that I did leave you my number for you to call back, which you did not call back to discuss the situation with me. I also wanted to clarify the issue on the type of cattle farm I worked at. We were a very small breeder farm. Uh, about 60 head, and the vast majority of those cows lived long lives. We had names for them. We knew their personalities. They dropped a calf usually every year, and they had wonderful lives. A few of them were incredibly hard to maintain, and those are the ones that we looked in the eye and see you behave for your dinner, and they became dinner. Now, a point to this for people like me that eat meat is how many meat eaters actually know what they're eating. I mean, I mean, hunters do. I'm not a hunter. But let's face it, if you didn't hunt in the east, the deer population that would starve to death because there are more deer now in the eastern part of the United States than there were in revolutionary times because the predators are gone. So at least I have the ability and had the ability, not so much anymore, but had the ability to see what it was that was dinner. 
And that's what the majority of Americans do. And in fact, the gentleman was saying from Japan that called me a lunatic is that,、uh, you know, that's a lunatic thing to do. I think if you look worldwide at the people that do eat meat, especially in the third world environment, many, many of them do see what they're going to eat. So, anyway. I think the last point, the point I'd like to make, and you probably won't hear from me again for a long, long time, is that the vegan or vegetarian group, which of course they have their rights to be that, and that's the you know, thing about our society that's great, that people have rights to certainly make individual choices. But if any member of who's a vegan or a vegetarian had an abortion or condones an abortion or is in any way pro choice, which I am, I am strongly very, very pro choice. No one is pro abortion. But abortion rights, of course, should be the domain of the woman who is pregnant. However, if someone who is a vegan, if someone who's a vegetarian would condone or have an abortion, then they are the worst kind of hypocrite I can imagine.、Uh, enjoy your efforts. I don't know how much good in the overall cause it's doing, but at least you're making an effort. And、um, it's better for me to call it. I'm not quite so mad. <laughs> I'm still upset the way you trashed the guy from Phoenix, though. See ya. Have a nice day. Bye. Oops. Okay. So I thought I wasn't going to have to make any、uh, comments along with these voicemails. And then I realized that something was said that I just cannot allow it to stand、uh, without comments. The only way that the charge of hypocrisy can stand against a, a vegan is if the vegan holds the position that the consumption of meat should be banned by the government. You know, that is you know, what's fundamentally at the core of being pro choice. You can be. Uh, you know, completely, as the caller just said, no one is pro abortion. And you can, you know, the, the idea of, of someone having an abortion can make you sick to your stomach, and you could make the decision for yourself that you would never, ever, ever in a million years even consider doing it yourself and still be pro choice. And that is essentially the argument that vegans are making. As I said, if they were making the argument that Meat consumption should be banned, then they would be giant hypocrites. And to be fair, I'm sure that there are some vegans in the world who would support legislation to ban the consumption of meat. I'm positive that they're out there. I've never heard from one. So I don't know where people like this caller are getting this idea. And he's not the only one, but it's Fundamentally, a straw man argument because it just doesn't stand up to the comparison. And go ahead and get excited now because there is a whole slew of straw man arguments from a caller that I'm going to play in the next show who's like set a record for the number of illogical arguments that you know, go so far as to be deeply offensive. So look forward to that. Until next time. <laughs>